This is Guns and Butter. How about the Pentagon? There's a theory as to what was going on in Wedge One, um, which has something to do with the 2.3 uh, trillion dollars that uh, Cheney had announced the day before 9/11 that, oops, it's missing. The story cards got completely buried by 9/11, and the part of the Pentagon that was hit was where the uh, the people who and the computers that would have been checking. Uh, about that money were. So this looks like it's a deliberate act of murdering these particular people. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. David Ray Griffin. Today's show, Did Muslims Attack the United States of America on 9-11? 21 Reasons Why the Official Story is False. Today's program is Part 2. David Ray Griffin is an author, theologian, and lecturer. He is author of Debunking 9-11 Debunking, an answer to popular mechanics and other defenders of the official conspiracy theory. And most recently, 9-11 Contradictions, an open letter to Congress and the press. For the past several years, Dr. Griffin has committed himself to exposing the fraud of the official story of the attacks of September 11, 2001. He provides multiple evidence to demonstrate that the official explanation is not credible. Today's program is a lecture delivered in Montreal, Quebec, Canada on June 21, 2008, which was chaired by Canadian economist and director of the Centre for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky, and hosted by Montreal 9-11 Truth. We begin with part two of Dr. Griffin's presentation. The topic I'm going to address tonight is, did Muslims attack the United States of America on 9-11? How about the Pentagon? So on the morning of 9-11, um, Flight 77, one of the best known stories is about getting in charge. Cheney not getting to the bunker till uh, about 10 o'clock. Uh, if you read the 9-11 Commission report, you find that uh, Vice President Cheney uh, got down there almost 10 o'clock, perhaps 9.58. Well, that was pretty late. The Pentagon had already been hit at 9.37, 9.38, according to the official story. And uh, Flight 93 was almost ready to crash, because according to the official story, it crashed at 10.03. And there was a lot of controversy about, did it get shot down? Did the U.S. military shoot it down? Because people around there said, the plane got shot down. I mean, that tended to give people a thought. And, and one of the pilots who got back to uh, Otis Air Force Base, he said when he got back to the base, he heard that one of our planes had shot down the plane over Pennsylvania. So there were a lot of rumors about this. And... Uh, but Cheney not getting to the bunker till uh, about 10 o'clock, so by the time he got in there and you know got organized, the plane would have been crashed already. So he couldn't have given the order to shoot it down. In fact, the 9-11 Commission tells us that he didn't get around to giving the shoot-down order till 10, uh, oh, about 10:15. However, 
if you go back to the 9-11 Commission hearing, Norman Mineta, on March 23rd, 2003, in open testimony, on TV, you can watch this on YouTube, uh, reported that he got to the White House about 9.15 that morning, uh, went in to see Richard Clark, the counterterrorism star, who was just uh, ready to start his video conference, and uh, that Clark told him, uh, you should go on down to the PIOC and uh, join the Vice President. And uh, Clark tells the same story in his book, Against All Enemies, a book that is not mentioned in the 9-11 Commission report, even though it became a national bestseller while the 9-11 Commission was in uh, session. It happens that Philip Zelikow, who wrote the 9-11 Commission report, you think it's Tom Kane and Lee Hamilton? No, Philip Zelikow, who is essentially a member of the White House, was the executive director of the Commission, and he took charge of everything. Um, they hate each other. Uh, Zelikow had come in and uh, uh, reorganized, helped Condi Rice when she became the National Security Advisor under uh, President Bush, helped her make suggestions, and one of them was that Richard Clark should be demoted. And uh, Richard Clark's book says all sorts of things that uh, contradicted in advance what the 9-11 Commission was going to say. So between those two facts, it's no mystery that uh, the 9-11 Commission does not even mention that Richard Clark's book exists. But it does, and millions of people have read it, and in there it says that Mineta came in about then, and he told him to go on down. And so Mineta said uh, he got down there about 9.20, and of course the Vice President was already there, and he reported this conversation that uh, he overheard. Well, I mean, he was right <laughs> next to it. The young man kept coming in the room, and he'd say, Mr. Vice President, that plane is now 50 miles out. Come back in. Now it's 30 miles out. Come back in. Now it's 10 miles out. Do the order still stand? And Cheney whipped his neck around and said, of course the order still stand. Have you heard anything different? It sounded like the confirmation of a stand-down order. Now, Mineta said he thought it was a shoot-down order. But, of course, nothing was shot down there. This was before the Pentagon. He's very clear about that. Cheney later, uh, Mineta later said, well, I may have been wrong about that. Uh, he was pressed to say, well, about what time that would have been, about 9.25 or 9.26. He later said, well, I might have been wrong with that, but it was definitely before the Pentagon was hit. And uh, so what did the 9-11 Commission do with Mineta's testimony? They completely omitted it. No reference to it in the 9-11 Commission report. My second book, of course, was called The 9-11 Commission Report, Omissions and Distortions. This is one of the 115 lies of omission and distortion that I cataloged. Uh, and that if I were writing it now, I'd have way over 200 uh, of them. Um, it was not only Mineta. Uh, other people, David Bohr, Cheney's own photographer, said that Cheney went down the, the Secret Service guys came in and took him down shortly after 9 o'clock. Uh, Condoleezza Rice on a ABC show is uh, shown supporting this. So uh, there was no controversy about this, but it was just too dangerous to have Cheney down there. So the 9-11 Commission report just changed the time that he went downstairs by about 45 uh, minutes. So the 9-11 Commission felt pretty bold to contradict all these people. And really, really bold, they contradicted Dick Cheney himself. 
this is my newest article. I just published it the other day after Tim Russert uh, died, the uh, well-known uh, host of uh, Meet the Press on NBC. And uh, five days after 9-11, uh, Russert came up to Camp David and interviewed Dick Cheney in a memorable interview. And during this interview, Cheney said, uh, they talked about other things, and then uh, Russert said, well, you know, tell us about what, what you did that morning. So uh, Cheney went through what his morning was like. And he reported that uh, the Secret Service guys came in to his office and picked him up. Pretty dramatic story about, the, you know, they're really big guys, and I'm not so tall, so my feet barely hit the ground. And they take me downstairs and take me into the corridor that leads to the Peacock at the other end. And uh, I stopped and I phoned the president, and then I walked on down to the Peacock. And uh, shortly thereafter, we got where the Pentagon's been hit. So we got the sequence. Gets to the Peacock, then here's the Pentagon's been hit. Read the 9-11 Commission. Here's what happened. There was a plane coming in that motivated the Secret Service, but it, did, it turned away, so they didn't take him down then. They, did, they waited till 9.36 to take him down. He didn't enter the corridor until 9.37. He went in and made his phone call to the president, but it took a very long time to get through to the president. You know how these presidential phones, everybody's calling him. <laughs> the vice president wouldn't be able to get through. And so it took a long time. And uh, while he was there, he was told the Pentagon's been hit. And he turned on the TV and watched the smoke from the Pentagon. And then finally got through the president, and he has a very long conversation with him. Then his wife comes, Lynn Cheney comes, and then they both walk in to the, to the uh, Peacock uh, at uh, about 9.58. So here you have an absolute contradiction between what the 9-11 Commission says and what Vice President Cheney himself said five days after 9-11, when presumably his memory was pretty fresh. You can read this uh, if you want to read the whole detail. It's called uh, Tim Russert, Dick Cheney, and 9-11. Uh, it's on Michelle's uh, uh, website, Global Research, uh, which is the one of the best websites in the world, by the way. Uh, how about the Pentagon? The official story about it, true. What is the official story? It's that Hani Hanyur uh, flew the hijackers took over the flight, and remember they got all pushed to the back, and Honey's up in the cabin. And he flies this plane back to Washington, D.C., without any help from the ground crew, of course. And uh, then when he gets there, he comes in and does an amazing spiral. He's up at 8,000 feet, and he's got to get down there, and so he does a spiral, 333-degree downward spiral, which he descended 8,000 feet and uh, then brought that plane in and hit the Pentagon in the first floor. Virtually all the people who were killed were killed on the first or the second floor. So it hits it between the first and the second floor without scratching the lawn, even though the engines stick down below the wings. This was some pilot. Uh, in fact, the day after 9-11, people were saying, this guy, he must have been uh, a, a 
first of all, they said it must have been a military plane just looking at the radar. Uh, but no, no, it was a Boeing 757. And uh, they said it must have been an expert pilot. Honey Hanjour was not that. <laughs> uh, about a month and a half before 9-11, he was trying to take uh, training in a single-engine plane. And the instructor refused to go up with him a second time. He said it's too dangerous. This was a universal opinion. Even the New York Times had quoted one of his instructors saying, I'm amazed he was able to do that. He couldn't fly at all. Um, so this, this story by itself disproves the official story. You know, we have an organization now called Pilots for 9-11 Truth. So you've got former military pilots, former 757 and 767 pilots. And they say, you know, like Russ Wittenberg says, I was flying these things for 35 years after being a military pilot. I couldn't have done that. I know a guy, you know, it takes years to go from small planes to medium-sized planes. And then even from a, a small plane up to a 757 or the big bird, 767, the big birds, takes months and months of training and certification and all that. The idea that a guy who had never successfully flown a Cessna could have jumped in one of these planes and even gotten it back to Washington, let alone doing this uh, fabulous uh, downward spiral and, and coming in at ground level. And uh, there are all, all sorts of other reasons. It was just physically impossible for a 757 to, to do that maneuver, no matter who was at the thing. But just by the, the story. So you could, even if you said, well, maybe they were wrong about Hani Hondur, maybe it was one of the other guys. No, nobody, none of those guys could have done that. Secondly, what part of the Pentagon did it hit? This is the most important part of the story. What would have been the motive? You know, these hijackers, they, they, they were people who hated America and hated Americans because they hated our freedoms. And they particularly hated the military, which was doing bad things in Muslim countries. And of course, that's no joke. Uh, we have had already before 9-11. So why would they have picked Wedge 1, which was as far away from the auspices of Donald Rumsfeld and all the top brass as you could get? Wedge 1's over here. They're over here. So there was no danger to their lives. Uh, secondly, Wedge 1 was the only part of the Pentagon that had been renovated, in which you put extra strong uh, facing on it and uh, fireproofing. And so any other part of the Pentagon would have done far more damage than Wedge 1. Wedge 1 would have been the last place these, remember these terrorists were really smart. They were smart enough to outfox the most sophisticated air defense system in history. You think they didn't know where, where Donald Rumsfeld's office was? You don't think they knew this is only part of the Pentagon that had been reinforced? You don't think they knew that because it was still being reinforced, the work was still going? There were very few employees there. So only 125, that's bad enough. But had they hit anywhere else in the Pentagon, they could have killed several hundred or even thousands of people. They would not have hit Wedge 1. There's a theory as to what was going on in Wedge 1. Now, Barbara Honecker has an essay on it at the back of Tim Marr's uh, new edition of his book, um, which has something to do with the $2.3 uh, trillion that uh, Cheney had announced the day before 9-11 that, oops, it's missing. 
the story cards got completely buried by 9-11. And the part of the Pentagon that was hit was where the, uh, the people who, and the computers that would have been checking uh, about that money uh, were. So this looks like it's a very uh, deliberate act of murdering these particular uh, people. Uh, I mean, the, the whole 9-11 thing is very gruesome when you think about it. Every detail of it is gruesome. Uh, this one is particularly so. You're listening to author and theologian Dr. David Ray Griffin. Today's program, Did Muslims Attack the United States of America on 9-11? 21 Reasons Why the Official Story is False. This is Part 2. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Uh, why was there no evacuation of the Pentagon? Why were 125 people killed? They said, well, we had no idea this plane was coming. You know, it had been just a half hour going from uh, the Midwest back towards uh, the Pentagon. Everybody knew, uh, everybody was saying, you know, it's the World Trade Center. Surely the Pentagon's next. They even had a bar they called Ground Zero. So uh, why wasn't it evacuated? Because they said we had no idea this thing was coming. Well, this, this last year, CNN, for some reason, revealed that uh, the most sophisticated military uh, command, control, and communication plane in the world, the E-4B, was flying over the White House, which is just a couple miles from the Pentagon, at the time the Pentagon was hit. Uh, the, the C-4B is known as the Flying Pentagon. If the Pentagon ever would get struck, uh, they could still command all of the forces, all of our nuclear forces, from one of these planes. And so here it is, uh, just uh, not very high, uh, just over the White House. And yet nobody knew that it took this three and a half minutes for this plane to, to spiral the Pentagon and come down in uh, three, and a half, uh, three minutes and ten seconds, I think. A lot of people could have gotten out, certainly all the people on the first floor. Uh, who got killed could have been evacuated. So uh, they did deliberately uh, murder these people. Um, Bush in Florida, I mentioned. Uh, why was he in Florida? Well, um, he was there to uh, advertise his, uh, publicize his, uh, his new uh, education policy. Uh, no child left behind. Based on his economic policy, no billionaire left behind. <laughs> and uh, so he got to the school. And then he hears that, oh, a plane has hit the World Trade Center, what a terrible accident, we'll do the reading thing anyway. So he goes in, listens to these uh, second graders read this book about their pet goat. So you know, the second tower is hit at 9.03. So a couple of minutes later, Andy Card, who's chief of staff, comes in, whispers in his ear, second World Trade Center tower has been hit, America's under attack. That's what he told us later, he said. And of course, Bush sprung into action, right? No, if you've seen Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 9-11, you know he sat there, and he sat there, and he sat there. Um, now, many people say, well, who would expect Bush to know what to do? That's a good point. But the Secret Service knew what to do. They're very well rehearsed. Their whole mission is to save the president's life. If there's a bullet coming, they jump in front of the bullet. And standard operating procedure is they always have a pre-established secret location. You rush the president to if there's any sign of danger to his life. Um, they didn't do that. They sat there. Now, there was one guy, the guy who carried his um, special telephone, saw that second plane hit the uh, tower. He said, we're out of here. But he was a low-ranking agent. 
obviously got overruled by the lead secret agent. And what does that tell you? You know, the Globe and Mail had a story said, why wasn't Bush bustled away? Um, what does it suggest? It suggested the Secret Service knew there was no danger. But there should have been, if the official story were true, if that was a surprise attack, and at that time there were seven or more planes that were thought to have been hijacked, they should have assumed, here they're going after high-value targets, what would be a higher value target than the President of the United States? All they had to do was crash into that school. They killed the President, all the people in the school, and incidentally, all the Secret Service agents. Those agents would have gotten out of there so fast if that had been a real surprise attack. But they didn't. Uh, when the 9-11 Commission asked them, why'd you leave Bush in the room? I said, well, we kind of wanted to get him out of there, but..." We didn't think we had to run him out of the room. And nobody said, well, you know, there might have been something between running him out of the room and leaving him there for another 20 minutes, like walking him out of the room. <laughs> you know, if, if decorum was an important factor. And that's what Bush said later. Oh, I didn't want to frighten the children. No, it would be rather, to, rather, rather better to have him incinerated. So then what did the White House do on the first anniversary of 9-11? It finally occurred to one of those geniuses. That was a bad plan. So they, they said, we should have had Bush just get up and walk out of the room. So let's just change the story. So Andrew Card wrote a story for the San Francisco Chronicle. He went on uh, MSNBC with uh, Brian Williams. He and Carl Rove uh, went on uh, ABC with Charlie Gibson. And they told this new story that Andy said, I whispered in the presidential ear, and he sat there just for a second or two. He got up and excused himself and said, excuse me, I have to go. And he left. Just changed the story. Now, this was 2002. Uh, Michael Moore's movie didn't come out until 2004. Hardly anybody had seen it. It didn't even surface on the internet until 2003. And... Uh, they thought they could get away with it. And they would have, probably without Michael Moore. Um, so you're getting the idea here. They're just lying on every single thing. You know, uh, when I was writing my report on the 9-11 Commission uh, study, um, somebody said, have you found anything untrue in there? I said, the challenge is to find anything that is true. Um, I've got an essay that's called uh, The 9-11 Commission Report, a 571-page lie. It is just a lie from the very first page to the very uh, last page. Okay, well, I've got some other things I was going to tell you, but I'll stop. I'll just tell you what I was going to tell you. I was going to tell you about uh, World Trade Center buildings and uh, why the official story absolutely cannot be true. A little problem with Newton's laws of motion and, you know, basic laws of physics. Um, little factors like uh, uh, of the 503 members of the fire department of New York who gave oral testimony and they weren't asked any questions, they just said, tell what you heard that day. 118 of them report, another Canadian uh, reported this, 118 of them gave very graphic descriptions of explosions going off in the building. And I, I brought the book up here, I'm going to uh, read you a bunch of these. 
So uh, if somebody in the Q&A says, uh, why don't you read a couple of those, I might. Other factors in there that show that um, it couldn't be the official story. The official story is, of course, the planes came in, hit the buildings, caused some damage, and then fire started. The fires got very hot, heated up the steel till it lost strength. And then uh, the top part of the building above that hole, crawled by the planes, fell down the lower part and then caused the lower part to just uh, crumble. Um, now these buildings came down at virtually three false feet. So it was like those lower floors with their 287 columns that went from the sub-basement, steel columns from the sub-basements through the roof, didn't exist. You know, they put out this story, these were hollow tubes. No, at 47 core columns that were this big around at the base, and then they taper up, taper off as you go up. And this is the problem with, uh, you know, Newton's law of uh, the conservation of momentum. If you hit, let's say you're in your little sports car, and you hit a semi, can you imagine that that semi that stopped at a light is just going to start going down the freeway about as fast as your little sports car was going? No, that's the conservation of momentum. There has to be some resistance. In these buildings, there was no resistance. Furthermore, in Building 7, there was no plane. So you didn't have any of this dynamic. You didn't have big fires. You had fires on three or four floors at most. 47-story building had uh, 81 steel columns. The building comes, you can see it on, uh, on uh, TV. Uh, you'll never see it on mainstream TV, but if you go on YouTube, you can see this, or any of the good you know, films about this. 9-11 uh, Mysteries you've seen, have you? Uh, that's a good one for this. Um, Loose Change Final Cut. Um, I happen to be the script consultant for it, so I happen to know that everything in it is accurate. And um, you can see the buildings in there, and so on. Uh, to come down vertically, a completely symmetrical collapse, that takes the best demolition companies in the world. There are only a handful of companies that can do that. And yet, allegedly, on 9-11, three buildings came straight down symmetrically, as if all their steel columns had been cut. Furthermore, you had steel that was melted. Um, steel doesn't begin to melt until 2800 degrees Fahrenheit. The hottest building fire in the world could not get over 1800 degrees, probably not over 1400 degrees Fahrenheit. So you're at least a thousand degrees away from the possibility of melting steel. And yet, people said steel was flowing down there like lava. You had an enormous amount of steel that was uh, melted. You had a story in the New York Times about the greatest mystery uncovered, that some of the steel uh, columns had been oxidized. So they were very thin, and they looked like cheese with the holes in them. And they were sulfidized. Sulfur is what you add to certain explosives, like thermite, to make the melting point of steel much, much uh, lower. Uh, Stephen Jones has discovered residue of thermite in ground zero dust, and so on. Finally, uh, last point that I was going to come to is that the story is now so much stronger than it was just a couple years ago, because a few years ago they could dismiss the 9-11 truth movement as a bunch of loony conspiracy theorists, you know, a bunch of kids on the internet, 
and then I joined and wrote some books, and they said a bunch of kids on the internet and an aging theologian. You know, we don't know anything about the real world. But now, you've got veterans for 9-11 truth, pilots for 9-11 truth, architects and engineers for 9-11 truth. You have former CIA uh, analysts who have joined the movement, some who've endorsed my books, and so on. So we've got a lot of people with the relevant kinds of professional expertise. And so, you know, if you read popular mechanics, they like to say, oh, all the experts support the official story. Find how many names you can find it. They just say all these experts. They name about four or five. We've now got, you know, we're in the hundreds or thousands, already 400 people within a year, architects and engineers, have signed up, uh, put their name on the public record demanding a new examination of the official story. So all the movement is in our direction. You don't find conversions the other way. You don't find people who say, oh yeah, I used to believe the alternative theory, but I've decided after scrutinizing the evidence that the official story makes the most sense. This is a, a well-known principle of irreversibility. Uh, movement can only go one way. You know, it's like starting with a bad wine. You think it's a pretty good wine. You learn, find, you know, that there are better wines. You can never go back to thinking Mogan David was a great wine. <laughs> I, I know this. I, I learned this from my own experience. So it's the same thing here. You can never go back to the official story once you know the alternative evidence against the official story. Well, thank you very much. You're listening to author and theologian Dr. David Ray Griffin. Today's program, Did Muslims Attack the United States of America on 9-11? 21 Reasons Why the Official Story is False. This is Part 2. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Are you suggesting that the um, pilots who drove the, the planes into the buildings were committing suicide? They were in on the, on the conspiracy? I mean, I don't quite understand. And uh, all those supposedly hijackers who were studying how to fly planes, what was that all about? It, I mean, I don't understand. And it seems to me that what is important to me is to find out who is the mastermind Behind all this, it's the corporations who want all this to happen so that they can rule the world with impunity. So the um, governments are simply puppets in the hands of big corporations that the corporations are the mastermind of all this mess. Okay, thank you. Thank you for those questions because uh, it's a huge story. and. Uh, so you've got the official story, and my major focus is on why the official story isn't true. But then that raises the question, well then what really did happen? And uh, a lot of those things I just don't know, but on some things I have a hunch, so I'll give you my hunches. Um, I suspect the planes uh, were taken over technologically and flown by remote control. The planes may have even been switched. Um, you know, the flight 175, uh, the transponder goes off right when it's uh, over Griffith Air Force Base in Rome, New York. So this is the, 
the, the center of a lot of this uh, technological innovation. So uh, there probably were no suicide pilots, Muslim or, or otherwise. Um, whether these were the actual planes, certainly Flight 77 did not hit the, the Pentagon. Whether Flight 11 and 175 hit the buildings, there's more debate on that, but quite likely not. It's not something I've discussed. But uh, technological control of aircraft has been possible for a long time and flying by remote control. So that's what I uh, suspect happened. And the uh, alleged high-cat jackers were, were uh, most likely patsies. They probably thought they were participating in some operation, but didn't know exactly what. Some people think they were running drugs. Uh, Otta, you know, while he was uh, supposed to be a flight school student, was already quite, a, quite an expert pilot and evidently was flying, taking flights uh, to the south from Florida. Um, so there are a lot of things we don't know, but uh, we could find out very quickly if we had a real investigation. So that's what we're calling for. But certainly it's helpful to have some at least possible alternative explanations as to as to what really happened. Hello, uh, my name is Gary Pierce, I'm with Um, you know, there are many people who 
who have all sorts of a priori arguments. They won't look at the evidence because they say, uh, we just know a priori it can't be true. And uh, one of those is, you know, well, somebody would have talked. Uh, or our government wouldn't do such a thing. Or this is the other one, our government is just too incompetent. I mean, look at Iraq. Well, look at Iraq. How quickly did we win the, the actual military battle? About two weeks. The Pentagon, when it's doing things it's trained to do, is very, very good. They are trained to intercept planes very, very fast. They rehearse these things. They get it down. They, they can shave two seconds off what they got last year. They're very, very pleased. They have contests between different groups. Whenever they're doing something, they've rehearsed. Now, they don't rehearse occupying countries. <laughs> America has never done that. Um, <laughs> uh, for that one, we should have had the Brits. <laughs> My response now has been, yes, they were far too incompetent to pull off 9-11 in a way that would not have been revealed within two days if we had a Congress and a media that were doing their job. I just reported many of the obvious mistakes where they get guys on there on the flights who died last year. Uh, and so they had to change so many stories. They, they changed the whole story about the, uh, why the flights weren't intercepted. Because they first uh, said the FAA told the military, they just told him a little too late and so the military didn't have time to get there. Well, this this was where I came into the 9-11 Truth Movement because the, the guys who were on board first, I'm a Johnny come lately, year and a half in, uh, these guys had done the math and they said, look, you got notified there, you still have plenty of time to get there from out of perspective. But even if you had to come all the way from Langley to go to the Pentagon, like you really didn't have any planes on uh, <laughs> alerted Andrews Air, Air Force Base, which protects Air Force One and the Treasury Department and everything, absolutely ludicrous to say Andrews didn't have any planes on 24-hour alert. But let's even say so, planes could have gotten there from Langley. And so that's where the movement was when I wrote the New Pearl Harbor and I reported all those times. Well then, as soon as the 9-11 Commission report comes out a few months later, they've changed, all the, they've changed the whole story. Didn't get notified about 175 until after it hit the building. Didn't get notified about 77 until after the Pentagon was struck. Didn't ever get notified about Flight 93 until several minutes after it crashed. Even though that conflicts with stories that were repeated hundreds of times in advance. So that was a big boo-boo on their part. And, but they just tell the new story and uh, get away with it because the, the press goes right along with them. So, uh, yeah. Hello, uh, Dr. Griffin. Thank you very much for your uh, expose. It was very amusing. But it was also a terrifying. Yeah, uh, it's a terrifying experience, and I would like to ask you: Where does all of that lead us to? We're talking about something huge. Uh, we're talking about billions of dollars, uh, trillions, trillions, <laughs> trillions of dollars, millions of deaths, uh, a huge amount of lies. Somebody somewhere is trying to lead us into something, and I would like to understand what is what that something actually is. Can you can you give us your lights on that? Uh, no. <laughs> Again, I have my hunches. I think the woman who uh, spoke first uh, is in the right uh, direction. We're talking about uh, plutocracy here. Uh, 
you know, we talk about that we have democracies. We don't. We have plutocracies. Democracy is one person, one vote. Plutocracy is one dollar, one vote. So one billionaire outvotes uh, uh, millions of us. And you know what that means in, in terms of buying airtime, in terms of, of saturating the public with, uh, with an ideology and saturating it with a myth, the myth of 9-11. Um, who this is, why they want to do this, uh, United States, um, uh, certainly Dick Cheney has long time had a lust for power. Uh, he's wanted to turn uh, the presidency into a monarchy and uh, make the United States the uh, head of a global empire. Uh, already, you know, when uh, uh, he was Secretary of Defense, uh, one of his last acts was to have this uh, new Pentagon Defense uh, Doctrine written up, which uh, Libby and uh, Wolfowitz uh, wrote up. And um, it was described as Cheney's plan to rule the world. Well, 9-11 was his chance to put that in effect. It hadn't worked out so well. He thought, uh, you know, Iraq was going to be a cakewalk and, and, and all of that. They had a hit list of seven countries they were going to take over. Uh, it wasn't just the two, it wasn't just the three. Uh, Wesley Clark revealed this in a couple of his books. Um, he was told by guys in the Pentagon, and everybody seemed to agree on this uh, list. It's just different order. Which, which way are we going to knock them off? Include Saudi Arabia. So you know that oil is uh, central to this. And uh, all these countries just coincidentally had, happened to be uh, primarily uh, Muslim. And so you see how 9-11, because uh, it could so easily be more. It didn't have to be somebody from Afghanistan. But, you know, what the, what the motive is, um, there are lots of different theories about this, but I don't um, get into that. I think one thing at a time, and uh, I certainly do suggest it was uh, partly for empire, and certainly some very big money is behind this, so that's what I, what I mean. It's a, it was a plutocratic operation, and uh, probably... Uh, the motto was plutocrats of the world uh, unite. We have nothing to lose but our poor people. You're listening to author and theologian Dr. David Ray Griffin. Today's program, Did Muslims Attack the United States of America on 9-11? 21 Reasons Why the Official Story is False. This is Part 2. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You know, if you know the story that Aaron Russo told, um, he, he died uh, this last year, but uh, the one who did Freedom from Fascism. And he told me this when I went down to L.A. To, uh, he, he wanted me to come by. He was planning his next film was going to be on 9-11, and he wanted to kind of see if I thought he, he, he should do this, and, uh, and I did. Um, and he told me this story that he sent, uh, later told publicly that... Uh, he had become friends with Nicholas Rockefeller. He's not one of the brothers, but one of the cousins. That he had become kind of buddies with him, and then Nicholas wanted him to join the Council on Foreign Relations, and well, he didn't want to, but uh, that when Nicholas was uh, being buddies with him, he, he said, well, let me tell you, Aaron, what's going to happen. He says, uh, this was uh, uh, about September of 2000. He says, uh, you know, a little uh, a year from now, we're going to be going through caves in Afghanistan looking for terrorists. 
So that gives you a hint that uh, big money uh, was behind this. So that's about all I can, about all I can say. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, my question was going to be about uh, Angel is Next, the, uh, the threat that the Secret Service received against uh, Air Force One on 9-11, uh, and the fact that it kind of indicates maybe it wasn't Bush who was uh, behind 9-11, because in fact he was threatened with uh, assassination unless he went along with uh, the plot. But that was already kind of addressed as to who was really behind all of 9-11. I just wanted to ask... Well, let me say something to that, and then I'll still give you a question. This, this is the question you didn't ask, uh, so it doesn't count. Um, you know, we don't know if that story is true. I think Webster, Tarpley, is convinced it is true. Uh, it may be true, and it may be true that, uh, that Bush wasn't involved in it in the beginning, and, uh, and that uh, going around that day had something to do with... Uh, getting him on board. Bush doesn't seem to me like a guy who, who, who had to be gotten on board uh, for some project that might require moral uh, scruples. But uh, it, it is true that when, when you see Bush in the Michael Moore's film, and when Andy Card whispers in his ear, uh, he genuinely looks puzzled. Um, anyway, uh, I just doubt that Bush is that good of an actor. And he could have looked that puzzled if he was thinking, oh boy, it's happening. <laughs> um, uh, so I really don't, I, I really don't have a theory on that. So I'm just saying be a little cautious about it because there would be reasons to tell the story about Angel is next if they wanted an explanation why Bush didn't come back to Washington right away, if they wanted him to be somewhere else. But in itself, it's very suspicious because it means that they had access to the Secret Service's code name for Bush. If it really happened, yeah, it would yeah. be suspicious. Yeah, and we don't know. See, all this stuff, we don't have any direct access. Like you were saying about how they changed their story, for the first few days, even Fox News was reporting it, and the, the White House was confirming the story, and then after a week or so, they started backing away from it, saying, oh, well, the threat wasn't so credible after all, and they started... Yeah. It's not a point I want to argue because I don't I don't know one way or the other. I'm just saying uh, necessarily gospel truth. So what I'd like to pick your brain about a little bit is what can we do up here in Canada? We're not Americans. We cannot petition your government to do anything about it. What do you think we can do to help? Funny you should ask. <laughs> I've thought for a long time. I think I think there are two good ways that we might get something going. I was just at a meeting uh, a couple weeks ago with uh, Bill Pepper. You know, prove that, that James Earl Ray did not kill Martin Luther King. Right. A civil trial, and uh, so he was exonerated. And uh, Pepper has a book called Act of State, that the assassination of Martin Luther King was an act of state. And now he's become the uh, lawyer for Sirhan Sirhan, you know, in proving that Sirhan Sirhan didn't kill Bobby Kennedy. I mean, I'm no lawyer. I think I could do that because it's so open and shut. Sir hands out here, firing at Bobby. The shot that kills him comes from here. But the point is, you've got to get publicity, and you've got to get, and it takes somebody with real uh, moxie and who knows the strategy, and that's where uh, Bill Pepper is really, really strong. So he suggested some ways that the 9-11 truth movement, as well as the uh, peace movement with regard to Iraq, could use the court systems 
And so that is something you could do up here. I mean, you had how many Canadians die on 9-11? Something like 25, yeah. So uh, they were murdered. There's no doubt about it, they were murdered. Murdered by somebody. And so it's the government's duty. And this was uh, what Yukihisa Fujita was saying in Japan. We had citizens killed, and our government needs to look into this. It's your duty. And here's all this evidence. So that's something you could do, is sue the government for not investigating the real causes or the real criminals behind 9-11. So you can do that. Um, now, I gave a little speech at that thing, and I know that's been going around YouTube. Has anybody seen that? Where I, it was in three segments a couple of weeks ago. But I, so I know that's out on there, but whether Bill Pepper's part of that speech was given, I don't know. But look around on Google and uh, see, um, you know, probably William Pepper, Los Angeles, June 2008. And so you'll get some more concrete ideas from him how to do that. Second means, I've been suggesting this, that if a jury or a citizen's panel from a country traditionally friendly to the United States were to have some of its most prestigious, well-respected citizens sit on a panel for a week, hear the evidence supporting the official story, hear the evidence supporting the alternative view that the official story is false, and let them come to a judgment, maybe the press would report that. So um, that would be my suggestion, and there are some Canadians working for this now. To me, it, it got a little bit dodgy from the start when I saw the nose coming out on the other side. And I was wondering, well, this is hard to believe. And I, actually, the people on the television were saying it's hard to believe as well. So hard to believe that uh, conspiracy theory is becoming more and more kind of reality theory. And we can laugh about it. We are cynical. We are ironic about it. I'm imagining that a lot of people know. A lot of people know in the media that they got to know because they saw the same things that I saw. Now, how is this entire thing still holding together like that? How many people are threatened? How many people are feared in order to keep the secret and not saying out loud? Why is this thing still holding? Well, uh, fear is a powerful motivator. I, I know of people who say, I'd like to write something about this or so on, but if I do, I lose my job. How do I support my family? And I'm thinking, you know, the world is hanging in the balance here, but nevertheless, that's the way it is. And I don't know if I were that age and still had a, you know, kids that I would be so brave. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, like I say, an aging theologian, and I've got... Uh, and, and the policemen and the firemen that were there as well, I mean, they saw yeah. things. And uh, how many people got murdered on the site that day because they saw what they shouldn't be sure, able to Sure, sure. We don't know. And, and uh, you know, we, we hear from time to time murders that are, you know, uh, accidental deaths that look like 9-11 uh, murders. You know, with, with the JFK assassination, there were at least 100 people who were killed um, who had inside information. Some of them were on their way to testify when they mysteriously died. Um, people know that, and so they fear that if they come forward, they at best just lose their job and their reputation and never can get another job, and at worst maybe lose their lives. Sure, there are people in the media and uh, who know, for example, um, 
William Rodriguez was the janitor in the North Tower. He reports that he was down in the basement, sub-basement, and uh, explosions were going off there even before the first uh, uh, plane hit. And uh, see, that makes sense with those 47 massive core columns. You've got to get a lot of columns sliced. And, and that's where implosions start, is has to start from the bottom. And you can't do them all at once. If you're going to blow up 47 of them all at once, or actually blow up all 287 of them at once, this would be tremendous. So every, everybody on the planet would have heard it. And so uh, they had to start early, evidently. And uh, so he reported this, and then he said uh, NBC came out, spent the whole day interviewing him, on tape. Interview took his whole story. Not a single second of that interview has ever appeared. So NBC knows that. And of course we know that NBC is owned by General Electric, which is one of those companies that's getting very, very rich off of the so-called war on terror. My question is similar to the gentleman's regarding people coming forward. You mentioned four or five demolition companies. Are these companies not being investigated? No. That's the question. I can understand at the top level of government, these guys are keeping the secrets, they've got their documents, and they're, they're being exposed, and you're one of the people that's, you know, showing these omissions and, and discrepancies. But a demolition company, they're not owned by the government, are they not? Am I, is that what well, they're, they're regularly employed by the government, and the company called Controlled Demolition came in and did the, uh, the cleanup and got... Uh, I think it was well over a billion dollars for their little uh, role in getting rid of all the steel, most of the steel, very quickly. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, thinking for yourself is now a crime, and I understand that there's a Democratic congresswoman in California who introduced a bill, and she was with the security uh, subcommittee, Jane Harmon, and there is something called the uh, Violent Radicalization and Homegrown Terrorism Prevention. And I'm just wondering how it's going to bear on people such as yourself and those of us who may try to intervene in some ways. Yeah. Is this going to affect us? And did you mention that she's a Democrat? Democrat from my state. Absolutely. I mean, it, this, this thing is written so vaguely that anything almost that they don't like could be defined as uh, incitement to terrorism or whatever the technical language is. So yes, I think uh, if it passes, um, they could arrest me for giving a speech like this. Yeah, I think we had uh, one or two people stand up for uh, freedom of speech. Uh, but you know, we just got habeas corpus back by just a thread, and maybe we'll get free speech back, I don't know. But uh, everything they, they want, they justify in terms of 9-11. So when people tell me, why do you spend all this time on 9-11, you're distracting us from more important things. What in the world could be more important? They say, well, the Iraq War. The Iraq War is justified on the basis of 9-11. Well, the increasing gap between the rich and the poor, that's justified. And the, the wiretapping, the extraordinary rendition, is all justified by 9-11. So, thank you. I'm uh, studying anthropology at the University of Montreal right now, and uh, I'm a Muslim. And uh, but the thing is, like in the Quran, it's forbidden to suicide yourself first, and it's forbidden to kill women, children, innocent people, 
civilian, and even to cosmetry if you go to war. So if you call yourself a Muslim and you suicide bombing yourself, you're not a Muslim. So that's my statement for tonight about the Quran and people calling themselves Muslims. Okay, thank you very much, and that's a very good place to end because it brings us right back to my beginning question. Did Muslims attack the United States on 9-11? And I would say there is no evidence that they did, and there is even a lot of evidence that they didn't. So thank you all very much. listening to author and theologian Dr. David Ray Griffin. Today's show has been, Did Muslims Attack the United States of America on 9-11? 21 Reasons Why the Official Story is False. This has been Part 2. Dr. Griffin's most recent books are Debunking 9-11 Debunking, an answer to popular mechanics and other defenders of the official conspiracy theory and 9-11 Contradictions, an open letter to Congress and the press. Dr. Griffin's books are available at Amazon.com. Visit Michelle Chosodowski's website at www.globalresearch.ca. Audio for today's program was provided by Lynn Gary, producer of Unwelcome Guests, and by Montreal 9-11 Truth. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. Our engineer is Bonnie Bone. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Our website, www.gunsandbutter.net is under reconstruction. Hey yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, Trying to steal your life.